0: Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution as well as professor of law at NYU and senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Google controversy. And Richard, we were originally going to talk today about some labor policy issues in both the US and Europe. But in the interim, another labor-related issue has arisen not – Perhaps, at least at first blush, is explicitly policy-oriented but still probably worth discussing because everybody else is. We've had this uh, Google employee, gentleman by the name of James Damore, and he last week writes a memo for internal circulation taking issue with the company's diversity poli- policy, arguing in essence – although this has been mischaracterized a lot in the media – that the company shouldn't assume that if women are underrepresented in the google workforce relative to their percentage of the population that it's because of implicit bias or latent sexism but because men and women have on average different interests and different abilities and this sets off a huge firestorm and the memo goes public and this guy's out of a job within a few days after this thing is out there on the wind and his supporters say that this proves that this ostensible commitment to diversity that Google has is something of a farce and doesn't apply to intellectual diversity. And his critics say that this was poisoning the well within the company and he deserved to go. So there's a lot of different angles that we could take this at from uh, initially. Why don't we start with – the legal ones. We have been told that this gentleman had a complaint filed with the National Labor Relations Board about the company trying to silence him. Some people are making the case now that he has he has grounds to sue for discrimination in terms of his firing at this point. How do you read the legal side of this, Richard?
1: Well, it's very complicated, but the first thing to do before you get to the legal is to actually have to specify a little bit more precisely what the claim was. He said this only applied with respect to tech workers at Google, and he defined tech workers in this thing only as software engineers. So he's only talking about a slice of what the culture is. And then he says, I was fired, and the grounds that they gave was he perpetuated harmful stereotypes. And The first thing to note is this is a very hard case to win if you think about this as a regulatory matter having to do with one or another kinds of statutes, namely with respect to the labor statutes on the one hand or the anti discrimination statutes on the other. Um, And it's also very difficult to win if you think of it as a First Amendment case. So let's just take them in the road. First of all, with respect to the labor statutes, what they do is they manage to protect workers, even if there's no union, to the extent that they try to get together one another uh, for mutual aid and assistance. And that typically means to try to address the management team about one way or another. Um, he was not I think at this particular time trying to enlist other people in order to change the culture or to form a union or some kind of collective bargaining he was basically writing a creed de corps he had gone previously to another one of these diversity sessions he was appalled at what he saw and made it very clear he was also very upset about the fact that the mentorship programs at Google do not include white men but are only designated for women and various members of minority groups and he decided that he was going to speak out I don't think you could count characterize this as unionization efforts. The only thing that would change this characterization, Troy, is is something very potent and possible. He said, there are conservatives in the country who agreed with me. And now the question is, if it turns out Google decides to run a purge and says, well, we saw a bunch of people who supported this measure um, or this memo, Uh, they're gone too. Then it starts to look like an effort to collectively go after guys and you can perhaps get them on that. I would rate the odds of winning that is very low. The second thing we've started to say is the anti-discrimination law. Anti-discrimination laws are very funny. Uh, because they only apply to discriminations that are on certain kinds of forbidden ground and so if it turns out that uh, you decide to defame somebody on the grounds of race and they decide to defame you on the grounds that you're stupid uh, what you say about them or do to them may be covered by a race discrimination law, the claim in the opposite direction is not and they're certainly not firing him because of his race, his age, his sex sexual orientation or anything it's a pure content play is what they're doing so i don't think that he's going to be able to get the protection of any of the anti-discrimination laws even though the topic that he's talking about obviously has to do with what he regards as the unacceptable thumb on the scale that google has put in favor of every kind of employee except white guys like him so i don't think that he's going to be able to win that Well, you might say, this is surely a freedom of speech case, Um, but the first thing you learn about freedom of speech is the first word, Congress shall make no law, bridging the freedom of speech. Then it gets carried over to the states, and the states can make no law. That would cover, in many cases, common law rules by judges, as well as legislation or administrative orders. Uh, But this is Google, a private company, and it's a private company acting on its own initiative. It's not as though they are basically doing so because they were commanded by the federal government Uh, to take this particular action. So I think he's really under problem there. So does this mean that his legal case is finished? Well, I think the answer to that question is probably not. And let me see if I can explain it. Um, The general rule in American contract law is that you can fire somebody for good reason, bad reason, or no reason at all, and they can quit for good reason, bad reason, or no reason at all, unless there's some specific statutory prohibition. All that does is it allows Google to say, you are hereby terminated. What it does not allow Google to do is to say, you are hereby terminated because you think you have perpetuated vicious stereotype. If that statement turns out to be false, and it creates hatred, ridicule, and contempt in the public at large, Google may be subject to an action for defamation based not on the firing, but on the rhetoric that accompanied the dismissal.
0: One of the cases that is made in this memo, the author was frustrated and also cautioned that there could be um, the predicate for blowback based on the training that Google was doing around the topic of implicit bias, which for our listeners who aren't familiar with this, this is something that you increasingly see in American higher education there's been a lot of pressure to apply this to uh, law enforcement as well issues where there are sort of outstanding tensions around racial issues, and this sort of operates if we can if we can borrow from. From Marx for a moment, this kind of operates on the grounds of uh, of false consciousness, This, uh, this idea that you might have these biases at work that you're not even aware are operative in the decisions that you make. Uh, Richard, how did you respond to the criticisms that he lodged towards that particular way of approaching these issues?
1: I think he's hundred percent correct. I mean, uh, the difficulty that you see is there are two kinds of biases: they're explicit and they're implicit. And there's no doubt that if you go back to the 1964 Civil Rights Act, what they said is you don't have to say we're firing you because you're black if you can gather from all the particular circumstances that that was the dominant motivation, even though they papered it over with some other rhetoric, it would be fine. But In this particular case, everybody who was charged with implicit biases starts to go backwards to say, look, I'm in favor of diversity, I'm in favor of equal opportunity, I'm in favor of support for these various groups. So now what you have to do is to posit that they're really lying to everybody and to themselves, and that people on the other side have... No particular disabilities in the way in which they perceive the word, no implicit biases, for example, against white men who happen to be very good at software engineering and the reason i don 't like this is that this invisible implicit bias, very difficult to demonstrate, and you know the evidence to do it by particular evidence is virtually never there, it then justifies explicit non stop Discrimination against the groups that you say have implicit biases. And, you know, if you were to go back and simply take the 1964 Civil Rights Act as written, which protects any individual against discrimination on grounds of race or on grounds of sex and so forth, um, it would turn out that Google would be in massive violation of these statutes with every one of its sex-specific programs. Now, what has happened historically is by the time you got to 1977, say a dozen years after the statute is into effect, what happened was that the Supreme Court made this critical shift about the law. Instead of saying it says every person against discrimination, it says it only protects protected classes, and those are defined. So what used to be a two-tail statute became a one-tail statute. So I don't think that he's going to be able to overcome that. And what has happened, unfortunately, is uh, since one tail is rigorously circumscribed and the other one it's a field day, what you do is you get people who are freed from the shackles of the anti-discrimination law, often engaging in the kinds of discrimination which, frankly, I would have thought have been impossible. Uh, and I do remember the debates in 1964 when I was a college senior Over the particular statute in question. And everybody was starting to worry about Martin Luther King's famous speech about the content of your character, not the color of your skin. And somehow or other, affirmative action slipped through the cracks in a case called Weber. In 1979, Justice Brennan did a song and dance act on the statute. And now it turns out diversity is not a consideration, not a factor. It's the only thing in town with respect to many of these particular cases. And somebody who's on the wrong end of this feels a fury. And is very very upset, and so he's trying over backwards to explain. Look, I don't want to go back to the good old days. I just want you guys to relent a little bit on what you're doing to me. And then the charge of stereotype comes out. And if you want, I could explain to you why I think that charge is wrong.
0: Go ahead, Richard. On that point, why is the the stereotype charge wrong?
1: Well, it turns out one of the things this fellow is is a mathematician. And and he understands that the problem of race discrimination, sex discrimination, and so forth, um, would certainly be stereotypes if you made propositions of the sort. All men are smarter than all women. And the way in which he represents this in one of his graphs is he has a line on IQ or whatever it is, mathematical ability, and the line for the man is just, you know, all men are the same. Every man is to the right of every female, which means that every man is stronger than every female. And this, of course, would be absolute insanity uh, with respect to the way in which the world works. And he explicitly rejects it. His definition of a stereotype is if you have a median, you treat it as the only point in town. But he said that's just not the way the world works. He said what you do is you have distribution. And he says it turns out for a variety of biological reasons that you can trace this with sex more than you can with any other category because sex is what we call dimorphic. Uh, There's male and there's female. Uh, Basically, you could put aside the odd cases, you know, one in a million cases in between it. Uh, There are huge sex-specific roles in reproduction, fundamental asymmetries. With race, you're trying to figure out who's in the group, who's out of the group. Much harder to come up with a question of who the group is. Much harder to come up with a theory of differences. And so what he says is the theory of sexual dimorphism essentially runs as follows. Um, It turns out that women need one set of skills, men need another. Women have to care for children, and this is dominant in the early days. Men are out there hunting. And so what happens is, In order to get the gains from trade within a married couple, women specialize in the soft and tender stuff. Uh, They have to be intimate with children. They have to care for them. They have to do this. And the men have to hunt. In order to hunt, they have to calculate. In order to hunt, they have to have very good spatial distance differences and so forth. Uh, So that if you then sort of map it into the modern stuff, uh, women are going to be better at interpersonal relations, as he said, and men are going to be on average better at the other. So he puts the curves there. And what you see is that the medians are slightly to the right on the mathematical side and the spatial side for men. And then if you look at the two curves, what you will see is that you can do the following. You could take any given woman and have a pairing so that for every given woman there's a man who is better than she is. But it turns out there's going to be a woman at the 99.9th percentile is better than 98% of the men or more. And really what he wants to say is if you know all of this stuff, then you're trying to figure out how Google works. And he says it turns out uh, for the kinds of things that you're doing in the tech side. That's why I said this is tech, not social relations, not media, not communications, not office management, pure tech. He said those differences matter at the tail. And you will find, if you look at the curve, more men at that end than they will at women. And this is not a form of discrimination. It's essentially what happens is you have two particular curves and they have different medians. And it also turns out, though he didn't put it in the paper, they have different variances. And he says if you just look at that, it gives you an explanation. Does he say it's the only thing? Of course not. Nobody's going to be that crazy to do that. Uh, But it is a point to explain this. And the reason it's so important is if you have these two curves with different medians and different variances and you're looking at the upper tail where it turns out most of the time what we're doing is looking at, uh, you can explain the difference in outcome without having to worry about there being some form of discrimination. And that's the battle. And so when the guy from Google, the president, said this is stereotypical, he is mischaracterized in a very serious way what this man said and made somebody who's a pretty thoughtful guy on the technical stuff look as though he's an outright bigot. In my book, that's defamation.
0: The last thing that I'll ask you on this point, at the risk of oversimplifying a little bit, I have noticed something of a schism the past few days in how some libertarians and some conservatives are reacting to this. By this I mean that there are a group of libertarians who, while they may say that they don't like sort of the underlying substance of how this played out, Google's a private company. They're free to hire and fire as they see fit and there's a group that tends to be more conservative that says, yes, we'll, we'll grant you that in terms of the, the legal case here. But on the substantive sort of cultural dimension, there's still something troubling about the culture at Google and the broader culture in, in Silicon Valley that sees fit to just purge somebody on these grounds. Where do, where do you come out in that debate? Well,
1: my view is I'm like the rabbi who says to one guy, I think you're right, and then turns to the other guy and he says, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's actually fairly accurate. The general rules I mentioned was the contracted will for ordinary private businesses means that you could fire for good reason, bad reason or no reason at all. This is essentially the bedrock to a free market economy. Because the moment you say that you can only fire for cause, then somebody's going to have to come up there and decide what is and what is not a cause. And by the time you're done, you end up with the French labor code in which you say, well, there's a reduction enforcer code. And if so, who goes first and how do you do this? It's a labor Union stuff. So you don't want to go near the four cause stuff. In defense of the contract at will is an essay I wrote in 1984 and 51 University of Chicago Law Review, which takes this as a passionate position. And it says it means that you can fire, but they're qualification. You can't fire somebody and then refuse to pay him for the work that he's already done. You can't fire somebody and then say, hey, you can't sue for the injury that you incurred while in your work. You can't fire somebody who did all the work and a commission's going to be paid to the firm tomorrow and say, we're keeping that commission. All it says is you can let the person go and not explain it, but you have to square up the accounts. But what happened is they didn't just fire him. If they had simply said goodbye and not said a thing in the world, they would have been within their rights. But now they start the talk, and that gets you to the defamation. Is this statement false, and does it bring him to hatred, ridicule, and contempt? And the answer to that question is it's false, and it really hurts this guy um, in the world. So it's that. Now on the cultural side, the whole point about this is as follows. Uh, the legal system essentially says, we do not impose any legal constraints on you, but there is this huge body of law dealing, not law, but practice, custom practice, mores, and so forth. And one of the reasons why people are in favor of the contract at will at law is it turns out that if you're actually in a workplace and there are many workers there, and you start firing somebody off with their head and give no explanation, the reputational sanctions will really bank will bite and so that the argument is if you put this whole thing together it's the culture that stops the caprice that takes place as a matter of law and it does so most effectively in large organizations where it really matters as opposed to two-person types of contract where nobody wants to really get involved and so the conservatives are right now you look at Google. And what they've done is they've created a culture which most conservatives would regard as pathological in terms of the preferences that it puts out there, the indignations that it puts out there, the censorious conduct that it puts out there, the stifling of defense, the refusal to hire any conservative inside the rank, the possibility that they'll purge other people out of this particular company. Um, and they say this is a dysfunctional organization. And you know... All liberals rightly were able to say that about segregated institutions when they were privately segregated. Harvard didn't want to take Jewish students in 70, 80, 100 years ago. Somebody said it's their right, but by God, we think you're a weak and stupid university to do that. And how much does this matter? Well, this is the basic theorem, which is when you're dealing with an issue with this kind of a hot button stuff, the reputational sanctions actually are much more powerful than the legal sanctions. And this is the argument. You fire this guy, put aside the defamation, and assume that it's unlawful. you got to pay him a year's salary. You fire this guy, and you start to antagonize all sorts of people out there in the world. Your brand is going to be hostage to what you've done, and people will start migrating away from you, start saying bad things about you, and you can start losing billions of dollars Uh, to the reputational sanctions, because they kick in even if there's no lawsuit whatsoever that's going to be filed. So my view about Google is that it has really taken it on the chin. It's put itself into a controversial situation where it is culturally in a very difficult position to defend itself. And it's also done, I think, something terrible uh, to the world at large. Look, there are obviously all sorts of natural differences between people, groups, and so forth. The thing that you want to do if you're running a civil society is to figure out ways to bring out the best in everybody who's in your organization. And if you're a manager and if you're a leader, the thing that drives you crazy is backbiting on the one hand and unrealized talents of your employee base on the other. And what you have to do is to make sure that you stop the backbiting in order to get the progression to go forward. And what's happened is they've got a management catastrophe on their hands now. Everybody's going to be looking over their shoulder as to who said what to whom and when. Everybody's going to read things into the company's situation. Uh, they're going to have to figure out whether there's going to be a settlement, whether they're going to fire other people, whether they're going to issue an apology. He's going to continue to attack. It's a nightmare for a company to face all of that kind of situation. So the Google people were exceptionally ham-handed. And why was that? Well, there is another maxim, and I'll just mention it to you. You want to run a business. What you have to do is to get buy-in from all key sectors before you make a major decision. And it's also the key, you don't want everybody to have exactly the same preferences on every particular issue because you don't get any mix and you can't see what the other side is. And so what Google has done is it's created, as he said, a monochromatic culture and it responded in a particularly violent statute. Bam. And in fact, the strongest argument in favor of Mr. demoni is that they did exactly what he predicted they would do when he said they're too monochromatic, they don't listen to dissent, they just don't have He has basically been proven correct by what they've said. And I think this is a tragedy. Google was, you know, the innovative company in 1998, and now all of a sudden, it seems to have really lost its path. It's a tragedy for the nation, it's a tragedy for Google, and it's a tragedy for all the people who work in an environment which turns out to be intolerant of people who are actually going to say something, which, when you actually read what he said, his simple defense is, I'm telling you the truth. These other guys are telling you a falsehood. And on that point, I think he's right. People will find this offensive. That's the way the world often is. But what you have to remember is when the Supreme Court faced this issue, if you recall in the case on the slants right they said look you can say anything you damn well please if other people are offended they can't do anything in order to stop it and you have to learn to live in a world in which people say offense and there's an old maxim again the greater the truth the greater the libel which is a contradiction in terms because libel must be false but what they're saying in effect the reason this thing really hurts is it will resonate with large numbers of people who understand the way in which the culture is moved and it's moved in a very bad way indeed.
0: All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution.